How can we apply physics to understand complex biological problems such as cancer? Professor Peter Waitman looks at how we can use the laws of physics to understand the mechanisms that cause cancer, and how in turn this knowledge could improve cancer treatments in the future. In this episode, we chat about the wide-ranging nature of his research over the course of his 50-year career at Liverpool, his experience of learning with dyslexia whilst at school, and the big biological questions he'd still like to answer. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, don't forget to share and subscribe to the Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Today I'm joined by Peter Waitman, Professor of Physics here at the University of Liverpool. Peter, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, Well, it's uh, very nice to uh, be invited. Thank you very much. Since you've been at Liverpool, a lot of your research has been focused on condensed matter physics, in particular looking at understanding the physics controlling the behaviour of metals, alloys and semiconductors and their surfaces and interfaces. So can you tell us a bit more about this work and why it's important? Well, my uh, career has changed direction many times because uh, I find things interesting. And the wonderful thing about uh, science is that... um, provided uh, you are securely employed, uh, you are allowed to follow what you're interested in. So my uh, field of research has changed dramatically over the years. As you uh, started by introducing me, I started working on alloys and metals, and I was interested in how uh, the electronic structure of atoms influenced the behavior of metals. And there were some sort of uh, uh, strange things to explain. So, for example, if you made an alloy of two elements, at one composition, it could be very strong. At another composition, it could break up very easily. And um, nobody really understood this. We made quite a bit of progress in that field. uh, But then I got bored. And um, (laughs) about 20 years ago, it became clear that the biologists had made an enormous amount of progress in their subject. And for the first time, they were beginning to do, to understand biological systems from the bottom up in a mathematical way. And along with several other people, I became convinced that we could apply physical techniques to biological systems in new ways. And so I switched to doing that And that has been very interesting. And my current field of research is actually cancer. I'm trying to develop a fundamental physics approach to cancer. And this is proving very interesting and and may actually be useful eventually. Definitely. And it must be absolutely fascinating because I think a lot of people don't really link physics and biology together, but there's actually a great deal of physics underpins how biology works. Like you said, the biologists just started kind of to kind of discover this. And this is why you've moved into this area. Um, And for example, here at Liverpool, you teach the very popular fourth year module, the physics of life. And so here you're really looking at this interface between how we can use the physical principles that we know and we understand to look at how biological systems use these to work. So could you tell us a bit more about the work that you're doing on cancer and how you're using physics to understand this in greater detail? Yes, the the interesting question is, I mean, there are some very big questions in, in this area, such as, what, what is life uh, and what is the nature of disease? And from a physics perspective, 
you have to think of things in terms of thermodynamics and also in terms of information. So a physical, uh, a biological system uh, depends on transmitting information between generations. And of course it does this um, by physical changes in molecules. And when a disease happens, clearly the information flow has gone wrong. And I, I'm curious about the relationship between the thermodynamics of this what is the relationship of the energy flow to the informational flow and what are its consequences uh, for the organism and, and uh, how can one intervene, how can one get fundamental information about these processes which might be useful. And of course as a physicist you always think how can you do experiments but I think just as important as developing new experimental tools is trying to do, apply fundamental physical uh, principles to what is happening. And this is proving very interesting. The, uh, the subject has terrifically expanded something like, uh, let me think, 10, maybe 15 years ago, um, the American Congress said to the uh, American um, Institute of Health, President Nixon declared war on cancer 40 years ago. You're not winning, do something different. And so the Institute of Health said, where can we find a group of people who are very intelligent, totally ignorant of cancer, uh, but are sufficiently arrogant that they might feel they can understand the subject. What about the physicists? <laughs> um, so then set up a lot of physics groups to work on cancer. And this led to a number of things in particular to a completely new theory of what cancer is by the uh, cosmologist Paul Davis, who suggested that cancer wasn't a disease at all. It was just a consequence of multicellular animals. And uh, I find this an interesting idea uh, that I'm hoping to put some flesh onto experimentally. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely amazing. And I think it's fair to say that physicists do approach things probably in a very different manner to biologists. Um, and I guess, like you said, because we're so ignorant of the actual mechanisms behind cancer, because we don't know about the biology, we can approach it using our physics skill set of, you know, problem solving, logical thinking. So how is your research then at the moment looking, which is looking at understanding the thermodynamics of how um, the diseases affect the body and specifically cancer, how will that help cancer treatment in the future? Well, well we're working at the moment on a programme funded by Cancer Research UK mm -hmm. uh, to develop a new way of diagnosing oral cancer. Um, th this is a very specific problem. Uh, which we think we can make a contribution to. Um, we have developed a way of analyzing cancer in terms of its infrared spectral profiles. And um, we've developed, or my colleagues have developed, um, a machine learning algorithm to interpret um, experimental results and, and simplify the character of the disease. And using this, we think we can develop a probe that can first be used in pathology and possibly in surgery to decide which uh, lesions in the mouth will progress to cancer and will not. And the great benefit of this, we, we think we can do this with 90% accuracy, whereas currently the uh, surgeon is restricted to something like 70% accuracy 
and has to significantly over-treat the patient, possibly by taking out a lot more tissue that is unnecessary. Um, if we can do this, it will have a big effect on patients, of course, but also on the health service, because patients will not have to keep coming back to be monitored. Uh, so that's a very specific example, but I actually believe that this approach will be applicable to all cancers and that cancers will have a unifying element which we can determine and so that we can make a fundamental understanding of these genetic characteristics of cancer that we can interrogate using infrared. Um, this is um, a very pie in the sky idea. And of course, um, to clinicians who are terribly uh, uh, understand the disease in enormous detail, this looks like the flippant remarks of a physicist who doesn't understand the detail. <laughs> and, that, and that may well be true, but, but, it, but it's worth pursuing. Definitely. I think all the best ideas start as something that sounds a bit crazy to everyone else. And as anyone people start to do work on it and take it seriously, that's something, you know, really amazing can happen. So let's take a look back now over your career. Um, so growing up and at school, were you always interested in biology or physics? I, I had a, a very uh, strange uh, school um, experience because I'm dyslexic. So um, in primary school, um, I couldn't take any interest whatsoever in all this reading that everyone was doing. And at that time, nobody, nobody knew about dyslexia. So I was just considered rather stupid and backward. And I was more interested in playing with the bricks than, uh, uh, than, than all these letters and things. And it was only when I went to a hospital when I was nine and they gave me a book, Treasure Island. And the first book I read was Treasure Island. And uh, I now know some detail of, uh, of my particular kind of dyslexia. And I think in a sense, it's been an advantage um, because, um, because you could, I couldn't start in a traditional way. Uh, I had to do things in a different way that suited me. And um, uh, that sort of approach to life has uh, been the way that, that, that my career has developed, often, often with unfortunate consequences, I might say, uh, because if you don't follow the standard route, it, you do stick out a little bit. Um, but um, at school, once I did learn to read, uh, of course, I failed the 11 plus exam that we had at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I couldn't go to grammar school, which uh, was uh, in retrospect a relief. And I went to what was called a secondary modern school. And we had a very forward thinking headmaster called Mr. Dawes, who uh, didn't believe in that you could assess children at 11. And he appointed one teacher to teach physics. And uh, we had a number of teachers trying to teach mathematics. And we were learning mathematics along with them. And he had a sixth form and four of us went into the sixth form. And the only subject you could do was physics, but we enjoyed it. And we all got PhDs. Uh, so this, this made the national press, you know, uh, 11 plus failures um, uh, go to university and things. And um, I wasn't at all sure that I could go to university because I was a working class lad and I didn't think uh, children from my background, my, my father was a minor. I didn't think we went to university, but the um, headmaster persuaded us that we could do this and we did. 
Um, when I went to Kiel, I wanted to go to Kiel because it was unconventional. Uh, it had a four-year course where you, you studied every subject. And that was what attracted me to learn about all the subjects. I remember we did 400 years of Russian history in half an hour. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> pretty impressive, by the way. Um, so that gave me an interest in pretty well everything. So from then on, I've read history books and um, I'm, I'm pretty well interested in, in almost everything. Uh, so I've never really been able to focus very strongly. And um, uh, I, I think to be really successful in science, you have to find one thing and uh, give all your life to it and you can uh, make great progress. Uh, this hasn't been my approach. I, I've sort of had a scattergun approach and uh, I've always been very fortunate in the people I've worked with. Um, I think the key to a successful research collaboration is to work with people who, who do different things, who know different things. So my research group is made up of people, uh, quite a number of whom aren't physicists, and this gives you a different perspective. Um, and I think I have been incredibly fortunate in the accidents in my life, particularly the headmaster who didn't believe in the 11 plus, particularly my parents who thought uh, education was important. Um, very lucky in getting a lectureship at Liverpool. Uh, my birthday was the same birthday as the head of department. And uh, I think that's why I got on the shortlist. Um, <laughs> So I've, I've been incredibly fortunate in my life. And if I've had any success at all, a lot of it I'm sure is down to luck. What you've just told me is absolutely amazing and so, so inspiring. And I think it just shows that if you work hard enough, um, you can overcome any of these challenges. And you know, here you are today as a professor at the University of Liverpool. Um, so I think if we talk a bit more now about your uh, experience at Keele, were there any modules? You said you studied a wide range of modules and, and personally I think that would be a much more beneficial university experience, you know, like the US module where, uh, model, sorry, where you have, you get to study um, and major in something, but you have these minor modules as well where you can kind of follow what you enjoy and what you're interested in. Were there any particular modules that really influenced your career direction? I think they did. They 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 gave me interest. So, for example, uh, I did two history courses, uh, a geography course, an economics course, as well as maths and physics. And for, in, at Keele, you choose two subjects, and I was going to choose physics and history. And my maths professor said, "Look, you'll never be a good physicist without maths," which I think is probably true. And you can always do history. You can always read history books, and. Um, I think that was very good advice. Um, the physics at Kiel uh, was very good. The, the uh, department was full of uh, uh, a lot of people who were using techniques developed during the war and applying them to study matter. Uh, particularly during the war, there was terrific um, investment in uh, radio technology and radar. When the war was over, all this equipment became available. And the people in uh, who Kiel was set up in the late 1950s, um, the, uh, the physics department was made of very young staff um, who used equipment developed in, the, uh, developed in the war to apply it to 
physics problems and also biology problems. At about that time, the Nobel Prize was awarded to Max Perutz for the study of hemoglobin, um, which he had done by X-ray diffraction. And I remember the professor of physics, David Ingram, was studying hemoglobin with the electron spin, um, electron spin resonance. And this was a, a very interesting um, uh, project that I wasn't involved in, but I was interested in. So I suppose at that point, I was um, interested in biological systems. Biological systems are so much more interesting than uh, straightforward physical ones. Um, so, so uh, I suppose in a sense, I got an impression of that. I shall always remember my PhD had been going along for about two and a half years and I was making no progress at all. And um, I was doing an experiment to try and find a symmetry axis in um, a crystal of barium oxide. And the barium oxide was gradually uh, disappearing because it interacted with water vapor in the air. And so I only had time for a small number of experiments. None of them had been successful. And I put it in my spectrometer and I decided to orientate it in a different way. And I moved the axis of the magnet and all of a sudden I saw I'd found the symmetry direction. This meant I would get a PhD, I would get a good publication. Um, I didn't walk anywhere for the next three days. I ran everywhere and I didn't go to sleep. It was just a wonderful moment. And <laughs> You know, that the moment when, you see, creativity is a very strange thing. Um, when you do understand something for the first time, it is a fantastic revelation and really very exciting. Um, and that feeling is one that you want to have again. And it only comes about as a result of an enormous amount of work and a little bit of luck. And I think it's happened to me two or three times in my life, but it's an addiction. Um, it, 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 there's nothing quite like understanding something for the first time, especially when you've been trying to do it for a long time. But my hypothesis about creativity is that you have to work very, very hard so that you know all the results in your head and you don't have to look them up. But then since you cannot remember any everything, and some of the results are irrelevant, creativity happens when you accidentally forget the things that don't matter. And I think that's when you understand something. So you have to work very hard, but you have to be lucky. And, and, it, and it becomes an addiction. And so after your PhD, you then embarked on a nine month postdoc in Essex. So what was your work focused on during your time here? Oh, the crucial thing about the job at Essex was that I needed a job. And um, the, it was uh, one of the most difficult transitions is deciding what to do after your PhD. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started applying for posts. I wanted to do research, so I wanted to do a postdoc. And uh, I used to spend every Sunday morning applying for jobs. And um, those people who were kind enough to write back to me and reject me, um, I saved all those letters. Uh, and piled them all up. And uh, one day um, uh, I, I actually got a, an, an interview and uh, the interview was at Essex to work on calcium oxide, which was a related um, material to barium oxide. And I think that's why I got the job. And um, I, I was studying that using the same technique. 
uh, when I came to the conclusion that I would like um, a more permanent post. And at that time, there were very few lectureships. I think there were three or four lectureships. Um, and so uh, I applied for the one at Liverpool and was shortlisted for it. Um, and so I never really got very far at Essex. We got one publication out of it, which was uh, very nice. And uh, the group went on to do some very interesting things with calcium oxide. Um, uh, but at that point, I, had, uh, I, I came to the conclusion, whatever I wanted to do for my research, it wasn't what I'd been doing before. And I decided uh, that uh, electron spin resonance had come to the end. It was a development from the war that had now run its course. And I wanted to do something totally different. Uh, but I had no idea what it was. And uh, talking to my, um, my head of group, Charles Johnson, who was a very far-sighted scientist, um, uh, persuaded us that we could use some uh, equipment funding. He just set up a group in the department uh, to develop a technique called, called um, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy. And we had an instrument to do that. And so for 20 or 30 years, this was a completely new field, um, which led to a Nobel Prize for a guy called Kai Siegborn, who'd invented it. Um, and the, this was completely new. Uh, no one uh, really understood the spectra that we were getting. And so that was just ideal for uh, about 10 or 15 years, because whatever you did was new. Of course, you couldn't understand it, but that was the great thing about the job. Uh, but eventually I became convinced that that subject had, uh, had come to, or would not come to an end, but I'd lost interested, interest and I wanted to do something else. So I've never really focused very long on anything, sort of, well, I suppose 20 years, it's quite a long time. But, but um, <laughs> after that, I want to do something else. Yes, and I think this is the point where we should say that next year you will have been at Liverpool for 50 years, a half century at Liverpool, which is just absolutely amazing. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you've worked on so many different or in so many different areas, because although you said at the start, you know, to be a successful scientist um, and to make big, big contributions, I guess, Nobel Prize worthy, I guess you do have to be very, very focused, but surely it's far more interesting to work on lots of different areas and to just get a greater understanding of the world and still make fantastic contributions like you have. Um, like, especially the work on that you've done on cancer is absolutely incredible. Um, so I guess now if we could just go over a brief overview, almost of where your research has kind of gone since you joined Liverpool, because I imagine it was quite a big turning point in your career. Yes. I think it, it, it's been a sequence of hobbies, really. Um, mm -hmm. There was a time that when I worked on Auger's spectroscopy, uh, when I, I think it's probably true to say I, I was an international leading science on a, a scientist on Auger spectroscopy, and I had the opportunity to travel the world and give talks and everything. Um, and and I, I think I've made major contributions to that subject, which I'm very proud of. Uh, mm -hmm. But the subject has now developed since I left it using different techniques. And I, I occasionally catch up on the literature because it's interesting. Uh, but then I became interested in biological systems. And the key thing, um, the key difference in moving from studying electron spectroscopy and OJ spectroscopy to biological systems 
is that if you want to look at electrons, you have to look at them in vacuum. Uh, but the moment you want to look at biological systems, you have to be able to look at them in water. And so at that point, the technology had to totally change. And so I had to um, develop techniques to look at biological systems in new ways under liquids. And so this was a sort of technical change. Uh, first of all, we started uh, with optical techniques looking at the assembly of uh, amino acids and DNA bases and the way they organize themselves. The remarkable thing about biological systems is that they spontaneously organize. Um, and we develop ways of looking at that optically uh, by looking at uh, changes in the reflections from surfaces under liquids when biological molecules are absorbed. And that was looking very successful. Um, and I then wanted to move from molecules to bigger things like tissues. And to do that, you had to develop completely new experimental techniques. And I had some Italian colleagues uh, who had been working together on a number of uh, things. In, in particular, the focus had been how to get money from the European Union to, do, to put together big collaborations to work on important problems. Mm -hmm. uh, just meeting all these people, um, I became aware that they had a technique uh, which you could use to study tissue. This was called scanning near field um, microscopy. And so they built one of these and we had at this time um, got funding to build an accelerator at Darsbury that was called Alice. And so I persuaded them to put their microscope on the infrared free electron laser on Alice. And in order to justify this, I needed a big problem. And there wasn't a problem bigger than cancer. So I made an argument, uh, it was perhaps fallacious, uh, but certainly succeeded in getting the funding, uh, that this was a new, totally new approach to studying cancer. Uh, there was no evidence whatsoever that it would be, uh, but I was fortunate in that it did turn out to be very useful in studying cancer. So we were then able to fund my group to develop this technique. So I think a thread that runs through all scientific research is how do you sell it? How do you get the funding to build the equipment you need? Uh, ideas are fine, but you, you also have to have a funding stream and you need good collaborators and they need funding. And so it becomes entrepreneurial as well. Um, so it, it's, it's rather right, running a research group is like running a small business. Um, and my, my great fortune is that I have a large, well, well, I suppose smallest number, about eight to 10 people who I work with in different fields. And by open discussion, uh, we can generate something that's more than the sum of the parts. I, I, I always sort of, uh, my idol is someone called Brian Clough, who managed the Derby County to great heights as a, a football club on the basis of players um, who were not particularly good at other clubs, uh, but they came together and made a wonderful team. And I think the key thing is that everyone can really do wonderful things provided they're in a group of right-minded people. It, it's, um, group activities are much more successful than the lone scientist. 
but it does require funding. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I totally agree. Um, a lot of people who've been on this podcast have said similar um, in terms of the most exciting work and often the most successful work happens not only just working in a group, but working in a group with lots of different disciplines kind of working together. So a biologist and a chemist and a physicist and all those different skill sets that um, people have developed from doing those different disciplines, when they all come together and approach a problem collaboratively, they, they can use these different perspectives to really come up with innovative and quite groundbreaking solutions uh, so I definitely agree um, and it's very interesting to talk about it so I guess this really brings us to your work today um, and where you are looking at applying physics to understanding cancer so what is well what are the next steps for your work at the moment I mean obviously I guess it's been affected affected by COVID-19. That, that hasn't affected us too much because um, several of my research students had got a lot of data prior to the um, lockdown and we were able to analyze that. Um, what worries me most about this virus crisis is the effect it's having on young scientists who are not able to do experiments and, and we must really hope that we can uh, get young people back into the lab um, mm -hmm. um, as soon as possible. But the most immediate thing, um, is to develop this instrument to diagnose oral cancer and then to put together collaborations with uh, clinicians in other cancer areas to try and see if we can apply our techniques to different cancers and, and link them up in a fundamental way in as one would expect from the hypothesis of Paul Davis. Um, uh, Paul's hypothesis is very controversial and has led to a lot of uh, criticism. Um, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that, um, that, that we will be able to link these cancers together in that way. Yes, and it's such important work that you're doing, and I'm incredibly excited to see the developments that your group makes. So I guess as a final question, are there any other particular areas? I know that you've had a very illustrious career and you've worked on so many different areas of physics, but, you know, other areas or questions that you'd like to address? Um, at the start, you talked about, you know, what is life and big questions like that, which have always kind of had a metaphysical leaning. Um, is there anything else that you would like to investigate further? I would like to develop ways of linking information theory to thermodynamics and in particular non-equilibrium thermodynamics. The physicists have let the biologists down um, in terms of the thermodynamic approach to systems. So for example, if you open a, a biology textbook, you will find Gibbs free energies as a way of explaining reactions. But the Gibbs free energy and the Helmholtz free energy are essentially equilibrium concepts. Their system's very close to equilibrium. Whereas living things are far from equilibrium. And we haven't yet given the biologists uh, a theoretical way of understanding systems far from equilibrium. And if I were clever enough, I would like to investigate that because I think it's an essentially it's an essentially theoretical problem. But I think you could devise a way, if you had a funding of the order of the moonshot project, I think you could devise a way to study non-equilibrium systems by growing cells, 
um, stopping them at various times and looking at their metabolic state as a function of time and trying to deduce from that a relationship between how the information throws, flows through the DNA and protein uh, generation of the system with the energy supply and, and to try and link these things together and give the biologists a proper theory of non-equilibrium thermodynamics. Uh, but this is, um, uh, this is science fiction. It would make a good science fiction novel, I think. Well, it already sounds like you've got a good start on how to potentially investigate this. So I'm incredibly excited to see, you know, where this research goes in the future. Um, and I think to finish off, I've got to say as a physicist, it's very admirable of you to look at biological systems because they are so complicated. They make the rest of physics look simple, to be honest. So well done for dedicating a lot of your career to looking at these systems. Um, and so Peter Waitman, thank you so much for this amazing chat today. Honestly, it's been so interesting to hear all about your career. It's been fascinating. So thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your Liverpool Scientific. Oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Follow at Live Scientific on Instagram and Twitter to find out who I'm going to be talking to next and when the next episode is going to be released.